Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. There should be a black hardback ESV near you in the pew. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue through our new series out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. As you're turning there and um, getting ready for that, let me go ahead and make you aware of a few members who have uh, gone through our membership class last week. Uh, first up, welcome our new members, Joe and Kathy Lee. I think Joe and Kathy Lee are actually traveling this week for uh, vacation and Thanksgiving holidays, but make sure to make them feel welcome as they move over from a sister church. Welcome our new members, John, Megan, Cortinez, and their kids, Jack, Anna, Lydia, Chance, and Callie, uh, moving up from Florida. And uh, they came here, and part of their uh, coming here was they visited on the very first Sunday of Romans, and then they got to move up here and finish out Romans, so that was kind of a, a neat thing uh, for them. Uh, but we welcome them. And then Ginger Mathis is coming here from the local uh, transfer. And so Ginger is, uh, is coming on board as a member of our church. And so having heard their testimonies as we go through membership class, we, we talk about what we believe doctrinally and we talk about how we function as a church. But then there's a moment where we all share our relationship with Jesus Christ and the testimony of our salvation. And having heard that, I make a motion that we receive them into our body. Do I hear a second? All those in favor, would I say I love you? All right, and that is the call of the church. So we do love you. We thank you for being a part of our family, and so we're just excited to, to walk alongside you, serve alongside you. All right, so First Thessalonians, as we're looking at living in light of his return is what we've called this series. And uh, when you're awaiting someone's return or you're awaiting someone's arrival, there's some preparation that goes into the day. As we uh, had our first Thanksgiving uh, meal of the season yesterday. There was a lot of prep that went into it. There was, uh, you know, you've got to get the turkey in at just the right time. And, and uh, you know, I was accused of always trying a different recipe when it matters. And uh, it turned out, okay, so it's all good. But, you know, we, we, we spend all day just preparing ourselves for the arrival of family. Well, when we think about our entire lives, awaiting upon the arrival of King Jesus, what preparation is being made? Are we living in light of his return? And real quick, I'll just say, if you want to live in light of his return, then live like his first coming matters to you. If you want to live in light of his return, then live as if the first coming matters to you. You have been given a ministry of reconciliation. You have been given the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came and lived in the flesh, lived the perfect life that we cannot live, died on the cross in our place and was resurrected on the third day, giving us newness of life. And so we carry the message knowing that he will return. So we live in light of the first coming mattering so much to us and then also living in light of that return. Jesus talks about uh, the kingdom in Luke. 19. Let me read this real quick to you. 11 through 27. He tells this parable. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, saying, Lord, your mena has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, 
you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I may have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This parable sounds very similar to the parable found in Matthew 25. However, the parable of the talents and this parable are different parables that are given by Jesus on two different occasions. And so as he's given this parable, it's pretty clear that we can see that Jesus is the nobleman who's going to be crowned king. And what John MacArthur says is this, what is compelling about this story is this, you're in it. Every single one of you somewhere, there are only three possibilities. You are either a true servant of the nobleman, you are a false servant of the nobleman, or you are his enemy. As we look at this, we see that the true servant reproduced what had been entrusted to them. The false servant did not reproduce or do anything with what had been entrusted to him. And the wicked, the enemy of the king, was not someone who was going around maliciously trying to do things, but just simply someone who said, I do not want you to reign over me. Now, how many of the world, how many people in the world are simply in that boat of, I don't have anything against Jesus, I just don't want him to reign over me. And if that is the case, then you are an enemy of the king. So, what have you done in preparation for his return? What have you been given? What have you been entrusted with awaiting on his return? And have you reproduced that which you have been so entrusted with? Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21, All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been given a ministry. If you are in Christ and you are a servant of the king, then you've been entrusted with the gospel. You've been entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation. And so what do you do with the ministry that's been given to you, with the grace that's been provided with you? Do you then sit on it? To the ministry that God has given us, the ministry of reconciliation. So if you have your Bibles, let's read. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Let's stop. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the ministry of reconciliation. We thank you that you've entrusted to us the ministry of the gospel, that we are not to sit on, that we are to share, and we're to go and to tell others of the goodness, that you became sin, who knew no sin, so that we become the righteousness of God in you, Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for paying our penalty on the cross and rising again on the third day so that we can have life and have it everlasting, that we can await on your glorious return as king. And so right now, I pray that we would bow our knees before you, that you would reign over us, and that we would not resist that reigning in our hearts. Father, I pray that if there's someone here who does not yet know you, who has not yet come to faith and has not yet bowed their knee before you, that the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, would come in and change their heart and draw them into repentance. I pray that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I'd like for you to see is living in light of his return is a ministry that endures. As Paul begins here, he's beginning a section where he defends his ministry. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. He says, Our coming to you, our ministry as we came to you was not empty. It was not ineffective. There's actually fruit that was produced. We see that something happened in our ministry as we came to you. And so our life's ministry for Christ should not be empty or ineffective also. There should be a fruit that is produced from the ministry of reconciliation that has been entrusted to us. See, Paul is being accused 
of coming in and just having words that were, you know, of flattery, just doing what the other speakers of the day were doing. And so now he's defending the fact that, no, there was an actual change that took place in the lives of those who heard the word of God, the preaching that we brought, the message of reconciliation, and so much of a change that we see that there's fruit. And so it wasn't vain, and it wasn't empty, and it wasn't fruitless, but there was something that took place. Paul then goes on to talk about how they come from Philippi. And as I mentioned last week, they're coming off having been beaten and thrown into prison. And even while they were in prison, they're singing worship songs there. And they're seeing God work in a miraculous way. And now they've come to to Thessalonica. And so they're there and they're saying, listen, we're having to endure for the ministry. We're having to endure for there to be a fruit in ministry. And so he even says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 or 5, as, you, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill the ministry. As he writes to Timothy, he's saying, listen, to fulfill the ministry that God's given you, you may have to endure suffering. There's a part of the suffering that takes place that proves that we are his, that we are faithful. Jesus would even say, listen, you need to count the cost before you follow me. He says in Luke 14, 27 through 30, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and, can, and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, was not able to finish. As we look at a ministry that was fruitful and not in vain, Paul had a ministry that sat down and count the cost, knowing that it was going to cause him to endure hardship, endure persecution, endure whole towns coming against him, riots and mobs. And so he was motivated in ministry. So let's ask, What motivates us in ministry? Why would we continue to endure in the ministry of reconciliation? Well, I've got three sub-points here under this one. Number one, our motivation for ministry is living to please God. Sounds simple enough, right? A, our ministry motivation is living to please God. He says that there, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul here says we are approved by God. Approved by God here means that they're tested. They're proved. They're tried. Just as metals would be put into a fire and purified and shown to be full of integrity, he's saying, listen, our faith has been proven because of the fires we've had to go through. We've endured in such a way that it shows that what we have is true. We've been tested. We've been proved. Peter would say this in 1 Peter 1, 3-7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, 
If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This enduring in the ministry of reconciliation is, though maybe now, if necessary, having to go through various trials, being grieved, it is the testing of your faith that shows that it endures, that it is a God-given faith. It is entrusted with the gospels, what he says there. Paul had been entrusted with the good news. This is part of his call that happened on the road um, to Damascus. As Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done for the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for I tell you, for, his, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He had been entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with the good news of reconciliation. He even says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So he begins and says that his ministry was not in vain. It didn't end there. It wasn't fruitless. So I ask you, if you've been given the ministry of reconciliation, if you've been given the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, have you endured? Have you endured hardship? Have you endured rejection? Has your faith been proved over the period of time? Because you have been given a grace, and that grace has not been wasted on you. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God. This is the motivation that Paul has. He says, listen, I do all of this because I want to please God. I know that my king will return, and I want to be found faithful. I want to be able to say, listen, you gave me this, and this is what has been reproduced in, in it. If we desire the praise of man more than we desire to please God, the result of that will be we will not share the gospel. If we really desire for people to like us more than we want to please God, we won't share the gospel because we'll be afraid of offending somebody. We'll be afraid of, of them rejecting us or persecuting us or alienating us or firing us, whatever it might be. But faith endures. The true gospel is offensive. It's offensive to the person who is happy with their sin. It's offensive to the person who believes that humanity is basically good. That man can be good enough in their own ways to please God. The gospel is offensive because the gospel tells us that we are dead, we are sinful, we are lost, we are hopeless, and we are condemned apart from Jesus Christ. And unless we bow our knee before him and make him Lord of our life and say he's Lord of our life, we're hopeless. It's offensive. Gregory Bill says this, in contrast to many today, including some in the church, who gained confidence from the approval ratings of polls, Paul 
was concerned only about one person's approval, God's. The source of our proclamation should be a heart that is confident before God because God himself knows our heart and that our sole motive is to please him. Let me ask you, is your sole motive to please God? B, our motivation for ministry is living not for a monetary gain or momentary praise. Verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul defends his ministry by saying, Listen, I'm not a traveling salesman. I remember early on in marriage when we were, you know, we were just living off of love. Like, oh, we love each other. That's all we need. We can make it. You know how that is. You're like, oh, but we love each other. Do you have jobs? No. Who needs a job? Let's get married. So um, we would we would find ourselves in these really interesting situations where people would say things to us like, listen, if you'll just sit through this 30-minute presentation, you know, you know what I'm saying? If you'll just sit through this 30-minute presentation, we're going to give you a free weekend getaway at such and such. Or if you'll invite us into your home and let us do a cooking presentation for you and allow us to show you how dismal and pitiful your cookware is compared to ours, we'll give you just a little tiny pan this big. And, uh, you know, the whole reason was is because they were traveling, trying to win your approval, trying to gain some momentary praise or some monetary gain off of you because they're going to try to sucker you in to get you to to buy in and if that's been you and and you bit hook line and sinker we'll pray for you but um, Paul he's saying listen a rightly rightly motivated ministry does not use people a rightly motivated ministry doesn't use people And Paul says, listen, I show up, and I didn't come with words of flattery. I didn't try to win you over for monetary praise. I came to please God and please God alone, and I'm not using you for anything. I want the best for you. And so I'm presenting to you the gospel. And I'll just go ahead and add, this is why the prosperity gospel is so destructive and damaging. Because the prosperity gospel is basically you sitting through a timeshare pitch that never gives you any benefits. See, our motivation for ministry is living out our love of God through a genuine love of others for others. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I love this line by Paul, as you just think about Paul writing a letter to a church, listen, I came and I could have just shared the gospel with you, but I didn't just share gospel with you. I didn't just share knowledge with you. I shared my life with you. Why? Because you're so dear to me. A genuine love. Paul uses the family illustration here to talk about the body of Christ, and he refers to himself as a nursing mother caring for a newborn. These believers... They were, they were infants in the faith. 
He had spent three weeks with them there, and that was it. And he was teaching them week after week after week in the synagogue. And so now he's like, listen, I'm just, I'm trying to nurture you in the faith. I'm trying to grow you up. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And so you begin on this nurturing, but then you grow in your faith. And this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, because, but, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Paul comes and he says, listen, there's a time where you are fed spiritual milk, where you are nurtured like a mother, where I'm going to raise you up, I'm going to take care of you, but eventually you grow up and you, you're an adult in the faith and you're not walking around with a baby bottle anymore. How many people sit in church and who are still just on spiritual milk? Grow in your faith. Paul teaches us that preaching the gospel here must be accompanied with affection. Preaching must be motivated by love. Sharing Christ must be motivated by love. As we go with the ministry of reconciliation, we must love the people enough to tell them about Jesus. We can't just tell them about Jesus. I didn't just come to share the gospel with you. I came to share my life with you. Do you share your life with people? Do you share your home with people? Is the gospel message that you give people motivated by your love for them? As the old saying goes, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Let's be a church that the community knows that we care. Number two, living in light of his return is a ministry that encourages. Let's pick up there, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Two points under this in A, our ministry encourages other believers through good work ethics. Through a good work ethic. He says, our labor, our toil, we worked. Paul knew that if he wanted his message of the gospel to make it to the, to the lives of these Thessalonians, that he must represent Christ well in the way that he works. He didn't want to put any burden on them. He didn't want to, to, to harm them in any way. He didn't want them to ever say, man, this guy, he's so worthless. He's so lazy. He's so entitled. He doesn't do anything. He just expects us to pay all of his bills. No, he says, look, I've worked I labored, I toiled. I was an example in the way that I worship God in the way that I work. Listen, your reputation and your witness, it's in how people see how well you work. Are you known as a, as a co-worker who works hard, who labors, who does the work? Students, I hated hearing this when I was your age, but your witness is in what kind of student you are and how you conduct yourself in a classroom and how the teacher perceives the, the attitude that you have because in your submitting to that authority, you're showing that you've submitted to his authority. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving 
the Lord Christ. Ephesians 6, 5 and 7. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Our good work ethic is also to be accompanied by a good moral ethic. Our ministry encourages other believers through good moral ethics. You are my witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Notice he says blameless, not sinless. Paul knew that his conduct was being watched. You're witnesses. You, you saw how I live. You saw that I'm not just telling you I believe this. My life matches it. I'm doing what the Word of God has, in, has entrusted me to do. They shared their lives with them, so they actually saw who he was in ministry. They saw them for who they really were, their manner of life, their manner of speech, their conduct towards others, and it was not stained with evil or immorality or perversion. Let me ask you, you've been entrusted with the gospel, the message of reconciliation. I'm going to ask you this. Does your manner of life encourage other believers to press on in the faith? Or does your manner of life hinder or discourage others from pressing on in the faith? That's a difficult question. We've been entrusted with the gospel, and people are going to watch how we work, and they're going to watch our moral conduct. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul, again, uses parental language to describe his ministry to the Thessalonians. So like a mother, nurturing them, nursing them with pure spiritual milk, he's now like a father. You know, as a, as a father, you always had that, that great moment of coming home from work and the wife looking at you and going, they're in their room and you're going to have to handle it, right? The dad's home, right? Now, you're going to get disciplined. <laughs> and you'd walk in there and be like, listen, I don't know what you did. Your mom's mad, so I'm going to have to spank you, okay? So I don't know. But this is Paul's instruction that he came alongside them as a father, a loving teaching, encouraging, discipling father. And he says, I exhorted you, I encouraged you, and then I charged you. Walk in a manner worthy of God. Listen, God's word, as we're discipled, we're charged to go and to live in light of his return in a way that's worthy of God. And how do you do that? Practical obedience. What is practical obedience? This is it. I'm going to start doing what I know God's Word has already commanded me to do. I'm going to begin with what I know the Word of God says. Practical obedience. I'm going to not do what I already know 
the word of God has told me not to do. Then we'll move on from there. But how many of us struggle with practical obedience? Can I remind you of the parable? Who was the ones that were the enemies of the noblemen? It's the ones who said, I don't want you to reign over me. I, I don't want you to reign over me. Practical obedience, a charge to the church to live in a manner worthy of God. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says, I urge you. Church, I, I charge you. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling from which you have been called. You have been given a ministry of reconciliation. You have been given the gospel, and I charge you to walk in a manner worthy. Are you conducting yourself Today, are you conducting yourself in a manner worthy of his return? Will you be found faithful? Lastly, living in light of his return is a ministry that endeavors. Verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Let's stop right there. The first thing, the only thing I have under this subpoint is our ministry endeavors to keep the Word. If you want to be a person who is entrusted with the gospel, you got to keep the Word. You've got to keep the Word for what it really is. It really is the authoritative revelation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you hold to the word. Every word is from the Lord. And we submit ourselves to it. D.A. Carson in an essay in the, I think it was in the 80s when he wrote it. There's a recent developments about doctrine of scripture. He says this. A high view of scripture is of little value to us if we do not enthusiastically embrace the scripture's authority. But today, we multiply the means for circumventing or dissipating that authority. I'm not here speaking of those who formally deny the scripture's authority. It is only to be expected that they should avoid the hard sayings and uncomfortable truths. But those of us who hold the thorough truthfulness of God's word have no excuse. Even some of us who would never dream of formally disentangling some parts of the Bible from the rest and declaring them less authoritative than other parts can by exegetical ingenuity get the scriptures to say just about whatever we want. And this we thunder to an age as if, as if it were a prophetic word when it is little more than the message of the age bounced off Holy Scripture. To our shame, we have hungered to be masters of the Word much more than we have hungered to be mastered by it. 
Oh, we can take Scripture and we can take it out of context and we can use it to justify just about anything we're doing. And what he says is you're just taking the message of the age and you're bouncing it off Scripture and giving it to somebody else. Because you want to be a master of the Word more than you want to be mastered by the Word. Man, if we want a ministry of reconciliation, we've got to be people of the Word. And to be people of the Word means we see it as an authority an authority in our life. It's back to practical obedience. Am I willing to do what I already know the Bible has called me to do? Am I willing to abstain from what I already know the Bible has told me to abstain from? In other words, if we say we believe the Word of God, but fail to submit to the authority of the Word of God, we don't really believe it is what it is. The Word of God. Mark Howell says this, to be transformed by Scripture, you must trust completely in the authority of Scripture. When you move from an intellectual grasp of the truth to an internal reception of the truth, your life will be radically changed. When Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians, he says, listen, you, you got the word and you got it for what it really is. The Word of God. He means when you heard the gospel, when you heard the Word of God, which was, is now the New Testament for us, but when you heard it for the first time, you took it for what it really is because it radically changed you. You didn't just say, oh, that's good. No, you allowed it to penetrate into your heart and change your life. Living in light of His return lives a life under submission to the Word of God. Because the Christian life is not about accepting Jesus into your heart. It's about following Jesus with all of your heart. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It is, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. They were commended for being the type of church that endured persecution and hardship and trials. They had a Christianity that was true. J.C. Ryle says this, There is a common, worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. Are you the type of church that carries on the ministry of reconciliation? Mark Dever, I will close with this quote. 
Real Christianity is never simply an addition to or merely, merely a cultivation of something that has always been there. Instead, it is in some radical sense an about face. It is an about face all Christians make, but only as part of their relying on Christ's finished work on the cross. To say you trust without living as though you do not trust in any biblical sense. We change the way we act. We do. But we only change the way we act because we change what we believe. The good news is that the one and only God, who is holy, made us in his image to know him. But we sinned. We cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the laws, the law himself and taking on himself the punishment of the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of sin, to trust in Christ. We are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. So we live in light of his return.